Okay, we're reassembling the assemblage here. Um, I'm Julia Lupton from UC Irvine. I'm really happy to be here today uh, to introduce our final speakers. Graham. On her birthday. Oh, wow. Uh, that best birthday present ever my husband could give me was a conference on objects. <laughs> I'm like in seventh heaven here. It was a gift of everything. It was a gift of everything, a hello to everything, yeah. So I'm going to introduce the two speakers in one speech and then let you guys speak because I kind of wrote it that way. Um, so uh, Graham Harmon and Ian Bogost are our final speakers. And as uh, we heard already this morning, I think many people have been here for the whole fabulous day. Um, Graham Harmon is Associate Provost of Research Administration and Associate Professor of Philosophy at the American University in Cairo. And if you were here this morning, or better yet, if you're into this stuff, you'll already know that Graham is the author of a stunning series of books, Reorienting the Heideggerian and also Husserlian traditions around the agencies of the object. Uh, he documents the process that got him where he is today in his most recent essay collection, which is you know kind of half brilliant essays and half kind of voyeuristic glimpse into your formation. <laughs> it's called uh, Towards Speculative Realism, Essays and Lectures, and it begins with essays written at the end of his graduate career at DePaul University. Uh, where Graham was studying philosophy while also, get this, working as a sports writer. You can kind of see it, you know, when he's up there. Kind of, you know. um, his major books include Guerrilla Metaphysics, um, Tool Being, and also Prince of Networks on Bruno Latour. And as we heard already, he's got amazing stuff coming out, including a book on Lovecraft, which I can't wait to read, appropriately entitled Weird Realism and a collaboration with Bruno Latour um, entitled The Prince and the Wolf. So Latour is the prince and Graham is the wolf, I assume. Uh, I'm also looking forward to his treatise on objects. Uh, Graham laces his philosophical prose with delirious object collections uh, that demonstrate poetically the force of his arguments. And this is, of course, somewhat in the style of Latour. And uh, Ian Bogost has created a fabulous macro, which you can find on his website, <laughs> called the Latour Litanizer, which allows you to build your own Harmonesque inventory of weird things, or you could say your own slinky malinky, <laughs> uh, using Wikipedia's random page API to generate lists. So if you get tired during the final segment and you've got your cell phone, you can check this out. Uh, this brings me to Ian Bogost. I've known Ian for many years since he was a graduate student here at UCLA. And although Ken constitutes my first and most primal contact with Ian, um, Ian and I have had an independent relationship based on our mutual interests in design and design writing, as well as our collaborations with Liz Losh, who is here in the room. Uh, Ian, as you probably know, is a scholar, but he's also a game designer an avid blogger, a great teacher, and the only academic I know of who has come off well on the Colbert Report. <laughs> uh, his major academic books include Persuasive Games, um, The Expressive Power of Video Games, and Unit Operations, An Approach to Video Game Criticism. Uh, he edits Platform Studies, a book series published by MIT Press. Um, he teaches at Georgia Tech, uh, he is a founding partner of Persuasive Games, which is a video game studio, 
and he is a board member at Open Texture, an educational publisher. And I want to say that today's event was Ian's inspiration. He worked very closely with Ken to bring this together. So I want to thank both Ken and Ian at this moment before everybody disappears. Are you first, Graham, or is Ian first? Wait, I'll go first. I think that's well, what it says on the schedule. Okay, so Ian's first. Uh, yeah, that's yeah, okay, so let's hear it different. from Ian. Yeah, <laughs> thanks, uh, thanks very much. It's it's great to be back um, at UCLA. Okay. Is it a bit dark? Yeah. Well, I, we closed this because of this. There was a, a big glare on the screen. But if someone in the back wants to wants to put the lights back up, then maybe it'll prevent us from lulling ourselves to to sleep. Although I'm, I'm going to try very hard to keep you awake. The other way, these little that might be it. Ah, that feels that feels a bit better, doesn't it? Okay. Um, okay. The title of this talk uh, is playfully object-oriented ontogeny. In 1954, Lieutenant Colonel John Paul Stapp strapped into a rocket sled named Sonic Wind and launched himself down a 2,000-foot railroad track improvised into the empty dust of Holloman Air Force Base. He reached a ground speed of 632 miles per hour before meeting a trough of hydraulic brakes, which decelerated the sled to a halt in 1.4 seconds. In so doing, Stapp withstood over 40 times the force of gravity, the highest known measure voluntarily experienced by a human. That same summer, an 18-year-old man drove home alone through the dark, quiet streets of Milwaukee, past the scrap recyclers and metal shops of the neighborhood of North Division. It was very late at night, late enough to better be called early in the morning, and the young man was returning from a date. Because he was young, and because he was tired, and because no radio broadcast could provide a jolt of the comet's rock around the clock at that hour, he fell asleep at the wheel. A deceleration less well-planned than sonic winds inadvertently delivered his automobile to the neighborhood's scrapyards. Colonel Stapp's work on the effects of deceleration had a profound influence on both military and civilian machinery. In addition to inspiring standards for fighter jets, his work on the common shoulder strap and lap belt was both theoretical and applied. He pioneered the first use of crash test dummies and advocated heavily for automobile seat belts. But they wouldn't become a required feature of all automobiles sold in the United States until 1968. The young Milwaukee man would recover from most of the injuries he'd sustained after his unharnessed frame was thrown through the windshield and onto the pavement. But when he finally woke up a month later, one trauma would remain forever. Ironically, it wasn't the crash itself that would permanently damage his vision, but the brain surgery that probably contributed to saving the rest of him. It's hard to know precisely what happened, perhaps a mistake, a nick of the scalpel against the optic chiasma perhaps just an unknown consequence of a then experimental procedure. The results would be a lifetime of legal blindness uncorrectable with optical prosthetics due to its source, withdrawn deep into the cranium, invisible. That young man was my father, and I have breathed the hot exhaust of his disability my entire life, like secondhand smoke. There were always some things he'd admit he couldn't do, like drive a car, but his dogged independence and overall bullheadishness 
none of which I inherited, thankfully, <laughs> contributed to his stalwart refusal to refuse to have a go at things. It's a virtue as much as a vice, and probably the same character that would insist that a tie was brown instead of green, or that a public toilet had been marked men instead of women, or that he didn't know I was there when he ran into me. Probably those same characteristics are also what made him persist in college earning bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees in psychology between 1959 and 1968, a time long before the Rehabilitation Act and American with Disabilities Act inspired universities to establish offices of disability services to assist such students. In a charming paradox, he practiced as a clinical vocational rehabilitation psychologist for more than 25 years, most of that time in his own private practice. Because nothing was facile, no device sufficiently ready to hand to qualify as equipment, everything was topped with a frothy head of mystery. When traversing a neighborhood block or parking lot, a constant vigilance for curbs, stoops, stumps, and other imperfections, which my mother or I might call out, and which my father would selectively ignore with ironic assurances. Yes, I see it. I see it. As if it were a game rather than a tool, the playful counting of steps and stairs, both aloud and with the impressively overstated footfalls that characterized his cadence, and which also served to combat the constant influx of rogue asphalts, cements, twigs, and other detritus. A ubiquitous pocket magnifier to investigate details of possible interest, but unlike the large lens of a Sherlock Holmes, my father's investigations yielded more commonplace conclusions. The sale price of Coca-Cola six-packs, or the current position on an FM dial lost in static, or the location of a rogue Excedrin tablet on a white countertop. When at a restaurant, my mother reading a litany of menu items aloud, too loud, including every detail of its preparation, grilled sea bass, roasted potatoes, forest mushrooms, spinach, orange beurre blanc, grilled salmon, whole grain mustard cream sauce, fried polenta, green beans, sauteed arugula, roasted peppers, heritage ranch grilled beef filet, cambozzola cheese, mushroom risotto, asparagus, nebbiola wine sauce. Such matters are further complicated by both of my parents' maddening idiosyncrasies, which they left suspended like an aioli between private language and public perturbation. In one memorable example, a new waiter at a Mexican restaurant they frequented responded so negatively to my father's requests for special handling of the complimentary tostada chips that a fistfight almost ensued. And perhaps you'll understand why his spirited request, kill them, kill them dead, might not have effectively communicated his desire for fresh, hot chips. <laughs> as a kid, this was a nuisance. Even as an adult, it's a nuisance. The combination of eccentricity and purblindness wrapped in a shroud of habituation crafted a unique being in my parents, one that works according to its own logic, the rationale of its operation hidden within its molten core. As their son, I was particularly accustomed to interpreting the vectors of lava flows that seeped therefrom, often offering vicarious direction for the worldly souls without who wished to step over them. I'd always considered this withdrawal a liability, a defect, a chronic isolation, a refusal or an inability to normalize behavior to the standards of ordinary society, impairment or none. But in that irritation, something was hidden in plain sight. My daily life as a child amplified things like a giant tangibility transformer, 
Ordinary stuffs enjoyed substantial, perhaps primary, focus. Without knowing it, I had grown up assimilated with mundane objects. I was uncompromised by the translations of human use or even of human sense-making. On the B-side of a lengthy ballad of social perplexity played a panegyric to the surprising, understated infinity of being, tree roots that evolve mountains out of concrete, the unpainted edges of uneven stairs, the brown buttons on hotel ice machines which blend into the brown bezel that contains them, the edge of the water-spotted flatware that precariously tips the coffee cup, the dots of half-toned ink that smear to fashion the pictures and letter forms on newsprint, the polyp that distinguishes a tangelo from a navel orange, the paralyzing black of a darker-than-usual darkness. I realize now that these worldly features were not mere distractions, absconding with the normalcy of social convention, devouring me into an abyss of civic weirdness. They were that, to be sure. But they were also a cultivation of ontological multiplicity, a foreshadowing of the unshrouding of the great outdoors. Eventually, I became unable to distinguish concern for my father's perilous moment-to-moment welfare from fascination with the nectarine, the spoon, or the sidewalk. I was reared feral among the objects. When we talk about being brought up, we usually refer to culturing a way of relating to other living beings, human beings, of course, but also animals and perhaps even the natural environment. This process involves ethical imperatives, directives about what to believe about and how to act upon the world. We give comparatively little thought to our aesthetic rearing, the matter of how we orient toward things and how things orient toward one another rather than what we do to them. A common scene in my childhood home, my father sitting on the floor perched mere inches before our 1970s-era wood-trimmed console television. It's a viewing distance at which the overall picture decomposes into red, green, and blue beams broken down into the pattern of the aperture grill through which they are focused. At that distance, the electric static from its picture tube becomes palpable, a Tesla coil lapping current at your nose like a puppy. The sensual ether of the television. For me, it's become as much an object of concern as the characters and scenes represented upon it, or the creators who fashion them from film or from software, or the viewers and players who watch and manipulate them. A cathode ray tube fires patterns of electrons at a phosphorescent screen, which glows to create a visible picture. This screen image is not drawn all at once, but in individual scan lines created as the electron gun passes from side to side across the screen. After each line, the beam turns off and the gun resets its position at the start of the next. For years, we have connected our computers to our televisions from Apple IIs to Xbox 360s. Most of these computer systems offer a frame buffer, a space in memory to store graphics information for an entire screen such that it can be painted like a photograph. In a frame-buffered graphics system, the computer's video hardware automates the process of translating the information in memory for display on the screen. But in an unusual move driven by the numerous design factors and constraints that uh, uh, orchestrated its architecting, the bare-bones graphics chip of the 1977 Atari video computer system, which is called the Television Interface Adapter, or TIA, does not buffer frames. 
instead of running Atari VCS program interfaces between processor and electron gun during every moment of every line of the television display. For the beginning Atari programmer, it's relatively easy to work scan line by scan line, setting up the next line's worth of sprite and background data and colors in the 22 processor cycles it takes for the electron gun to reset its position from one edge of the picture tube to the other before turning on again. But the machine's limited silicon affords the programmer but five movable objects, only two of which are high resolution, and enough memory to change only half of the low resolution play field. This was done to save memory and therefore money in the design of the system. The second half of the 40-bit playfield is automatically copied from the first or mirrored if a particular bit is set on one of the TIA's registers. Eventually, the adept creator will need to change something part way through a scan line. The only way to do this is to count processor cycles. See, the, the electron beam continues scanning whether the program does anything or not. In order to overcome the per-line graphical limitations of the TIA, the programmer simply needs to wait for the beam to complete the first part of the line and then change the values in the appropriate TIA registers to alter the picture accordingly for the rest of the line. To do this, the programmer must count the number of processor cycles that a set of instructions will take to execute and match that time up with the amount of horizontal space on the scan line that will have been traced by the electron beam in the meantime. This process of keeping just enough ahead of the electron gun to make changes to the picture was sometimes called racing the beam, a phrase Nick Montfort and I borrowed for the title of our book about the Atari. Mistiming by even a single cycle can put the entire display out of whack. Processor cycle, radio frequency, horizontal blank, electron gun, microchip. To see the richness of the object world, sometimes we must make ourselves blind to the human world. And about time, scholars in the humanities and social sciences like to talk about computers by waving their hands and invoking binary code as a sufficiently vague, vague and obfuscationist explanation for some subsequent indictment of a favorite hegemonic ideology, most likely something like the encoding of neoliberalism within late capitalism. Here's one I found without even Googling very hard. The very binary code used to make digital spaces underwrites a kind of commitment to either-or propositions and makes it hard to find the in-between spaces. One of the earliest insights about computer technology was that far from moving away from a linguistic structure, computer communications both simplified, zeros and ones, and complicated our reliance upon language. To equate a computer's nature with the basics of electrical charges is to embrace the same sort of scientific naturalism that cultural theorists usually abhor, positions which hold that the true nature of things amounts to their smallest bits, quarks, neurons, DNA, and so forth. And on the flip side, social relativists claim instead that human behavior and society structure the creation of material things, and therefore the latter always exhibit the former's logic like palimpsests or like ghosts. Thus, the critics' insistence that computer technology pr primarily amplifies human linguistic or symbolic life. But both of these positions are wrong. Indeed, a principle of object-oriented ontology holds that things exist equally irrespective of their scale and irrespective of their relations. Objects are not just their most basic parts, nor are they just expressions of human agents, or indeed of any agent whatsoever, that creates or uses them. And even if one wanted to take an eliminativist position, binary code wasn't ever a satisfactory choice. Voltage bands or transistors or logic gates are other candidates, but then again, those facilitate the creation of integrated circuits, each of which have unique designs and offer different functions. 
Likewise, the particular design logic of ICs can be said to implement another candidate, abstract logical design. That might take the form of the universal Turing machine or the particular implementation of that idea known as the von Neumann architecture, which underlies most stored program digital computers. And that's just the logical perspective. Materially, ICs are fashioned from metal tracks etched into monocrystal silicon wafers through photolithography, packaged in ceramic or plastic housings with exposed electrical connection pins, and, and so on and so on. When Nick and I set out to explain the Atari VCS, we did so from such a perspective, at least in part, trying to characterize how the unique design of that machine influenced the creative methods deployed by its programmers. And we explained how the results of these hardware negotiations influenced conventions and genres of future video games in unobvious ways. For example, Warren Robinett's adaptation of the PDP-10 text adventure Colossal Cave for the Sprite and Playfield VCS effectively invented the graphical adventure genre with its particular method of traversing large spaces by moving through them a single screen at a time and then moving a cursor off the edge of the picture to reach the next contiguous segment of space. And it was a necessary intervention in media studies, I think. As Nick and I wrote in the series forward to our platform study series, we believe it is time for those of us in the humanities to seriously consider the lowest level of computing systems and to understand how these systems relate to culture and creativity. But the more I find myself working with the Atari as a programmer, a teacher, and a critic, the more I realize that this isn't the whole story. It's worthwhile and appropriate to explore computing systems relationships to culture and creativity, of course. But such a picture, uh, but such a perspective paints only part of the picture. The lowest level of computing systems also relate to many other things, including televisions, styrofoam packing materials, alternating current electrical signals, and even other components of low-level computing systems. Platform studies can expand and deepen our understanding of how humans relate to computer systems, but it still leaves the question of intercomputational being for the engineer rather than the metaphysician. And the engineer's interest primarily involves designing, improving, manipulating, or otherwise putting computation to use for human ends. The metaphysician's interests are broader. For example, what is it like to be the 6502 microprocessor or the television interface adapter? It was this question that finally woke me from my correlationist slumber <laughs> with a static nip at the nose from the living room television. It wasn't so much that I had been doing anything wrong by posing questions about human creativity. Rather, it's that there are so many other questions worth posing. In his famous 1974 essay, philosopher of mind Thomas Nagel attempts to answer the question, what is it like to be a bat? For Nagel, consciousness has a subjective character that cannot be reduced to its physical components. Even if the experience of the microprocessor can be understood as electrical or logical or computational, such an explanation does not describe the experience of the device, what it's like to be that organism or that thing. Object-oriented ontology borrows the name withdrawal for this elusiveness, a feature of everything. Nagel's article is really about the mind-body problem, but it offers insight for a speculative approach to understanding objects' experiences, a practice I call alien phenomenology. The character of the experience of something is not identical to the characterization of that experience by something else. Nagel's goal is an objective phenomenology, one not dependent on empathy or the imagination, to use his words. But I want to sail a different tack. Unlike objective phenomenology, alien phenomenology embraces speculation as the only path to insight. 
acknowledging that such speculation will always caricature its object. Quite literally speaking, the only way to perform alien phenomenology is by analogy, whether that analogy comes through a critical process for characterizing object perceptions, an approach I call metaphorism, or through the process of constructing artifacts that themselves caricature an object's experience, an approach I call carpentry. Rather than objective instrument, what we need is a mechanism that welcomes distortion. Here's an artifact I made that performs metaphorism through carpentry on the Atari Tia. It tries to, to offer a view of the world of the Tia through the lens of the standard computer display. Since the TIA is synchronized to the electron gun of the television picture, instead of storing the entire screen at once, it determines which of its objects sit atop the current position of the display and modulates its output signal accordingly. Hopefully this is going to run. Yes. Uh, this program characterizes the experience of the television interface adapter, metaphorizing it for human grasp. When run, it interprets screens of a video game, in this case combat, rendering only the modulated color the TIA calculates and sends to the RF adapter at a particular moment. So this is the, the version of this that you'll see from the TIA's perspective, so to speak. Instead of seeing an entire television picture worth of image, the human viewer sees only the single hue currently processed by the microprocessor. Since the electron gun burns an entire picture into the phosphor of the television 60 times a second, the program is slowed down considerably. This rendering not only spares its human viewer seizure, but also highlights the rate of chromatic experience native to the microchip, which alters its signals in time with the electron beam rather than, through, uh, rather than the human eye, stopping regularly to await its position to reset to the next scan line. It also underscores part of the chip's experience that would never be graspable through human interface with the Atari and that's the TIA, that the TIA and the electron beam have to switch off during the television's horizontal and vertical blanks. When experienced through a decelerated metaphorical lens, strange moments of black silence interrupt the characteristically bright colors of an Atari image. Time moves forward in syncopated bursts of inbound bits and bursts of signal, then of color from joystick to motherboard to television. The machine has no concept of a screen image. It perceives only a miasma of data, color, and darkness. Colonel Stapp was 82 years old and suffering from the long-term effects of the many injuries he had sustained to become the fastest man alive when I met him in 1992 at the International Space Hall of Fame in Alamogordo. The complex sits at the base of the Sacramento Mountains, just a few miles from the stretch of empty desert where Stapp's rocket sleds had traversed the length of a football field in half a second. The museum's Gemini-inspired gold-mirrored windows turned away the desert sun that day, dumping luster onto the courtyard like a tipping minecar. There, sonic wind is fastened tragically to the cement yard, immovable, put out to pasture. As with my father, Stapp's fractured bones had long since healed, but the results of detached retinas and permanently broken blood vessels had significantly reduced the clarity of his vision. But in exchange, he'd tousled speed and wind and Icarus with roadrunner's wings. The colonel had been aware of the risks before his final run on Sonic Wind, and he'd practiced dressing and undressing with the lights out, so if I was blinded, I wouldn't be helpless. But sight overheats and reverses into a different kind of blindness. True blindness ruptures relations rather than embracing them. And we could all benefit by being reared by the blind. 
Helplessness resists the relation between our real and sensual sides, developing the muscle that loops the real self to itself. Now, object-oriented ontology is a first principles philosophy, but we can also arrive at it from the bottom up by grasping at forces in the dark. We can embrace our own withdrawal by becoming just another thing among the tangelos and the ice machines and the screen phosphor. Thank you. heard some talk about Latour litanies. This is Ian's term for these long lists of objects that have become a kind of a stylistic trait of all object-oriented works. Latour does them very well. He's not the first. Uh, as Sian Nagai was reminding me a short while ago, Walt Whitman is very good at these as well. Um, one of the things Latour litanies suggests is a flat ontology. I want to talk a little bit about that term. Um, Anwar Delanda uses the term flat ontology in a new philosophy of society to mean that all object, all entities, all assemblages, as he calls them, are to be treated in the same terms. They're all on the same footing. Uh, none are more real than the others. They all must be treated in the same way. Interestingly enough, he seems to draw this term from Roy Baskar. Um, and Baskar means the term negatively, unlike Delanda. Delanda often does this. He borrows terms and then changes the sense of them somewhat. He does that with redundant causation as well. Uh, Bhaskar's sense of flat ontology is negative because for him that means all entities are flattened out into their accessibility to humans. And he doesn't, Delanda obviously doesn't want that. He, he believes in something like a virtual, he believes in something real that's deeper than our perception of it. Uh, I actually like both senses, and I'm going to, to speak positively of both of those senses of the term here in this talk, which I'll try to make briefer than this stack of note cards suggests. <laughs> Wasn't looking at the schedule when I wrote these up. Um, it is often said falsely that I believe that all objects are equally real. Uh, I've never said that. That is the early Latour. That is not me. It is the early Latour who believes that Popeye, Batman, Adams, uh, fill in your own Latour litany, all those things are equally real. And by the early Latour, I mean the Latour of Irreductions, which is that nice little appendix to the, the pasteurization of France, which is the wonderful case study of Pasteur. And when I started writing Prince of Networks, uh, Latour told me that if you're going to write about my philosophy, you have to focus on irreductions. This is the key to all his philosophy. It was never reviewed even once independently. Um, now, for Latour in that book, all objects are equally, all, all, he doesn't use objects, he uses actors. All actors are equally real, not all are equally strong. And what makes something real for Latour is if it affects something else. A thing is real insofar as it does not exist in a vacuum, it affects other things. But obviously not all things are equally strong. And strength is determined by your number of alliances, your scope of alliances. So uh, you know, fictional entities uh, do have a certain reality, but it's a fairly weak reality because not many allies testify to that reality. Um, so that's a flat ontology. It's a very good example of one Latour's early philosophy. He has modified this recently in his, his late system, which is not yet published, in which he has 14 modes of existence each of them somewhat different from the others. We should see this out in a couple of years because he's going to be giving the Gifford Lectures at Edinburgh in the fall of 2012. He'll join the ranks of Alfred North Whitehead, William James, and Bergson in doing so. Now, in fact, in my uh, philosophy, there are two kinds of objects. There are the real and the sensual, as I explained this morning. So it's not really a flat ontology. It's a two-layered ontology. 
Uh, it is flat in the sense that it's not a taxonomy. I'm not saying that certain things are real and certain things are sensual. Things have two sides, generally. So it's, a, it's a, an ontology in which every layer of the cosmos has two sides. It's not one that classifies two types of entities in contradistinction from each other. Uh, I think I'll skip the part where I explain real objects and real qualities, sensual objects, sensual qualities, because I did that this morning, and we're trying to save time here. The point uh, for this talk is that there is a difference for object-oriented ontology, at least for my ver uh, variants, between the real and the sensual, and so therefore you have to find some way to distinguish between them. You can't say that all things are equally real. Um, a lot of this stuff is stuff I covered this morning. I'm trying to get to the method part. No, it's not. It's different. Okay. How do you distinguish between real and unreal objects, or real and unreal assemblages? There's a nice list of these in Delanda's book, A New Philosophy of Society. That's my favorite part of his book, actually. I think it's chapter two. He gives a list of criteria uh, for what makes a real assemblage as opposed to something that's not real. And this is not a question Latour would ever ask, notice. For Latour, this is not a, you're not going to try to epistemologically distinguish between the real and the unreal. And Delanda's list is as follows. First, a real assemblage should have emergent qualities. It should have qualities that its components don't have. Very famous. H2O um, has qualities that neither hydrogen nor oxygen have. Redundant causation, which is a term he uses slightly differently from how it's used in analytic philosophy, that simply means that the pieces of a thing can to some extent be interchanged and replaced without affecting the thing itself. You can take atoms out of your body and replace them with, with comparable atoms, or even just remove the atoms, and you're still going to be the same person. It happens every seven years on average for us anyway. None of the atoms in your body now were there in 2002. Um, the third one is that they're able to affect things at their own scale. This is a kind of Latourian definition. A real assemblage is something that can affect other things. So if UCLA can affect other universities, then it's a real, real object, um, which I assume is the case. <laughs> uh, fourth one, he says, is retroactive effects on its own parts. Uh, Object-oriented ontology retroactively affects the lives of the four original members and so forth. So that sense of OO is real and not just an aggregate of its pieces. Also, uh, for Zolanda, real assemblages can generate their own parts. So a city will be a good example of this. Los Angeles can generate its own institutions uh, that were not there before. Now the thing is, in Zolanda's book, the list is not systematic. It's just kind of a laundry list. He gives us five interesting criteria, and five is not a very philosophical number, as you know. We're all paranoid systematizers in this field, which means everything's ones, twos, threes, and multiples thereof. There are no prime numbers in philosophy. You can usually break down any philosophical... I've done that in the appendix to Heidegger Explained, shown how numbers play out in his philosophy. So we need to look at these uh, criteria of Delanda and see which ones are important, which ones are less important, and how to arrange them, and see what methods we can d extract from this system. Um, the first thing to note is that two of these criteria are not really necessary at all, and that's the latter two. The retroactive effect on the parts and being able to generate its own parts. I can think of plenty of examples of things that could be real that don't do either of those. These tend to be more typical of living entities. Uh, you wouldn't say that a rock generates its own parts, necessarily, or other inanimate things generally don't. Retroactive effect on your own parts is not necessary either. It's, it's quite conceivable that certain things could come together and produce a more general effect without any of them being affected by it. So um, those two are not essential criteria, even though they appear on Zolanda's list. Meanwhile, there are two that are absolutely necessary, I would say. One of them is emergent qualities. If, if a thing doesn't have emergent qualities, then it's simply an aggregate of pieces. If H2O were not 
something that had qualities over and above the hydrogen and the oxygen, we wouldn't have any real reason to call it an object. And redundant causation seems to be another thing that is example. This one, this one might be uh, more easily challenged, but I'm going to stick with it. You can, you can imagine that um, it's, it's hard to think of an object that would, a real object that would not have some interchangeability of its parts. Uh, now, what's, what's, what these two features have in common is that both of them involve an object relations with its own parts. Emergent quality says that something is, a, is something real over and above its parts. What redundant causation says is that the parts can be replaced and so that the parts themselves are somehow not fully accessible to the thing. What, what it means, if you can take atoms out of your body and replace them with other atoms, what this means is that the singularity of those atoms is not accessed by your body, right? Because all your body is doing is some kind of gross approximation of the value of those atoms and using it for its own purpose. So in other words, what this means is emergent qualities means that the, your body is not fully explained by the atoms, and redundant causation means the atoms are not fully explained by their use in your body. It's a symmetrical sort of thing. Um, I'm here skipping again to try to save time. What this means, in short, is that there's mutual independence between an object and its pieces, if you're looking downward. This is one feature of a real assemblage. A real assemblage will be one that is something over and above its parts. Its parts are something more than the, than the, than the assemblage uh, utilizes. But there's still one of the Dolanda's five principles that we haven't talked about yet, and that is objects affecting things at their own scale. This is the Latourian point, that uh, real actors are, are things that affect other actors. Here we're not looking downward at an object's internal constitution. We're looking outward or upward or horizontally at its relations with outward things. And here, too, we can expect to find uh, the same sort of relation as with the parts. For example, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I should also add that in principle, this principle of taken literally is false. It is not really the case, at least for Delanda, that uh, things are only real when they affect other things. I think of the San Andreas Fault, which is not currently acting as far as I can feel, uh, but which I think we would say has a certain reality, uh, regardless of its current inactivity. So if we say that an object has emergent qualities over and above its pieces, we should also say that it has submergent qualities under and beneath its effects. Usually if people talk about emergence, we should also talk about the submergence, that the thing has to have some kind of reality there that's deeper than its current effects. Why? Because the effects can change uh, from one time to another. Not all qualities are manifest, and it's possible, I believe, that some real qualities might never become manifest. You can see this in the case of your own life. There are things, there are talents you might have that are simply never tapped. You live in the wrong historical era, you live in the wrong conditions. Uh, I don't think it's meaningless to say that those qualities are there in you, they're simply not uh, ever manifested. This is one of the tragedies of human existence, in fact. As my little brother once brazenly put it to my parents when he was not doing well in university, I'm a genius in a field that doesn't yet exist. <laughs> and it turned out to be true. It turned out that the World Wide Web was that field. It took a couple more years for it to be invented. And he was very successful at that point. Uh, but his his, I would say that his talent did exist. It simply didn't have the right environment in which to manifest itself. So uh, we find that objects are, just as they are independent from their own component pieces, they are independent from their outer effects or their relations with other things. We saw in the previous case, though, that just as a thing is something over and above its pieces, those pieces are something not exhausted by the thing, right? The, the, the atoms of an object or the, the pieces of this podium are not totally exhausted by the podium. Is that also true uh, going in the opposite direction? When you're talking not about a thing's relation to its own pieces, but 
its relation to other objects in the environment. Yes, that's obviously the case. Um, trying to decide what to skip here, I'm sorry. Well, just as we have redundant causation, where you can interchange the atoms that are the components of an object, you can also uh, see that an object will treat other objects outside of it as interchangeable falsely. And the, the term I came up with this was, came up for this is uh, obtuse causation. <laughs> that a, for example, a flame could burn multiple cotton balls not realizing that their singularity is, is different in each case. It sees them all as, as equally burnable. So what, what I was getting at with all of this is that we have four features of real objects, uh, which is it's, it's independent from its pieces. Its pieces are independent from it. It's independent from other objects in the environment. They are independent from it. That's four features. And by simply reversing those, we can come up with four kinds of pseudo-objects, or four features of a pseudo-object. Uh, four features that indicate that a thing does not have reality, does not have the reality that we think it does. And I've come up with terms for these to make them more memorable. If a thing lacks emergent qualities, the traditional term for that is an aggregate, which Leibniz distinguishes from a substance. You know, list eight random objects in any Latour litany on Ian's sites, and you're going to have a mere aggregate, probably. Uh, something that's not an object taken together. They're individual objects, but taken together, it's not a systematic new object. If it lacks submergent qualities, remember submergent qualities are when the thing has reality over and above what it's making happen, then it's merely an event. And an event is usually viewed as a positive thing in contemporary continental philosophy. I view that as a, as a negative thing, a non-object, when something's merely an event. If something lacks redundant causation, meaning that you can't replace its pieces with similar but new pieces, then I would say it's merely a set, which is another term usually viewed positively in contemporary continental philosophy by the Bedouins. But I don't think it is. You can't just extensively define an object by saying it's this, 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 and this. There has to be some principle of unity to it over and above those elements. And if it lacks what I call obtuse causation, then it is merely an impact, for lack of a better term, which means it's, it's nothing more than its effect on other things. Right? Um, so to repeat those, an object isn't an aggregate because it's more than a collection of things. It's something uni that unifies those things. It's not a set because it's a unifying principle. It's not just an extensive and arbitrary collection of pointing at seven or eight things and saying that that's a, that's a set. It's got to be some internal structure, as you were saying about Bud's you earlier. Uh, it's not an event because it's deeper than any event. An object can enter into many different events. And finally, an object isn't an impact because other entities are deeper than that object is too. I mean, the, the fire's effect on the cotton, on all the cotton balls taken individually, does not exhaust either the fire or the cotton. But how do we express all these four features in practical terms? There's a way of, one way of doing it in each case. Uh, how do we reverse the error of seeing objects as events? We do that through counterfactuals. This is already a known method. You can imagine objects in different situations and imagine what the effects would be. And this is important because I think this is something that's actually weak in Latour's theory. I love Latour's theory, but he's not very good at counterfactuals. He's better, A and T is better at explaining things that have already happened and trying to trace all the elements that have contributed to that situation. Um, so, you know, imagining Lincoln in ancient Rome, how might he have played out there? Imagine a Middle East with an Iranian atomic bomb or, or imagine an invaded Iran instead. What are the possible things that would happen in either of those cases? These help us allude to the thing as a style. Lincoln isn't something simply that was confined to that particular historical period in that country, but is something over and above that that could be translated. What would, you know, there are computers that do this. They take on top of old Smokey and turn it into a Bach fugue. Uh, that's not me. You can do that. You can do that kind of thing. 
Um, so that's the first thing we do, counterfactuals. This will be the first method for getting at the reality of things. The second would be what I call hyperbolic analysis, which I've used in three publications. This is reversing the error of impact. This is reversing the tendency to see things in terms of the effects they have. Um, instead of critique, also, we, what I've done, I did this in the article on Zalanda, I did this in the book on the tour, and I did it in the book on Mayasu, which hasn't been published yet. In order to look at the impact of these philosophers, what I did is not critique mistakes that they made, but imagine that they have total success. Imagine that they become the dominant philosopher on the planet 20 years, 30 years from now. And then you imagine what would still be missing. What would still be missing if Mayasu were the dominant world philosopher in 2050? You know, don't, don't fuss around with detailed mistakes that he makes, but grant him everything and then see what's still missing. And that's what I did at the end of the book. Um, okay, now working in the other direction. Oh, I, no, let me say something else about that. If a philosophy cannot survive the hyperbolic test, then it's less of a real philosophy, I would say. So if you, if you take some minor article that somebody wrote about a detail, you know, a perfectly respectable minor article about some detailed point, and try to say, imagine that this is the most important philosophical text of the 21st century, it can't survive that test, obviously. You need work of a certain level, a certain comprehensiveness, and that's a more real philosophy. The more it can pass that sort of imaginative test, the more real it is. Okay, now the other two are a little harder. Um, what we're trying to do here is talk about the mutual independence of a thing and its pieces, a thing and its components, uh, where the thing is not reducible to its pieces and where the pieces are not reducible to the thing. And we actually do this all the time. In one sense, we call this simulation, where you're removing a thing from its pieces and simply trying to treat it as a formal model. You could, you're testing the behavior of a tornado of the 1976 Cincinnati Reds, drawing on my sports writing career, <laughs> without having to reassemble all the physical pieces that made those things, of course. You're simply testing them uh, and see what will happen. And what I've realized while thinking about this is that paradoxically, a thing is more real, the more it can be simulated, the more it can be parodied. You can parody good poets better than bad ones, can't you? Um, on my blog, if you go to the search box and enter Trockel, you'll find all of my simulated Trockel poems in the 1990s. A friend of mine and I invented a little computer program that would do this, and they're hilarious. Some are better than others, of course. Um, some of the most vicious parodies I've ever read of a poet were of Rilke, and they don't make me like Rilke any less, but they're spot-on parodies. I really enjoyed in my article in Lovecraft writing a parody of Lovecraft writing a, a story about a Cairo hotel, and I'd like to write a full-length study of that. In fact, my Lovecraft craft book will probably contain a number of parodies. I think it's a valuable method. If imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, then simulation and parody are an even more sincere form of flattery. The less real something is, the harder it is to simulate. It's harder to simulate a, a bad writer or a bad philosopher than it is a good one. In other words, the style of a thing is not just an aggregate of all the deeds it has done. The style of a thing is something over and above those that can be simulated. Um, and so here I would say, against some Luddite principles, if there were, truly were a computer able to write new Shakespeare plays at will, I think this would be outstanding. I think this would be a tribute to Shakespeare, not some sort of cheapening of his greatness. I think it would, it would show that the style there is something perhaps more real than the, the mass of works that one person wrote. Um, and that leaves one last <coughs> feature of pseudo-objects, which is reducing them to sets, reducing them to pointing at an extensive number of things and saying it's just a set, it's not a real thing with a unifying principle. Um, we already saw that simulation shows that Rilke or earthquakes are substantial forms independent of their material components that can be removed and put on a computer and, and generate effects. What about the reverse? Is there a reverse situation in which we can show that those material components are actually real beneath all simulation? And actually, yes, um, the answer to this is accidents. When things happen that we don't expect, 
And in what sense are accidents method, a method? Well, all the time. We, this is what falsification is about in science, right? You're, you're, you're finding accidental things that happen to a theory that, what, that weren't expected, uh, things that point to the independence of the material components from the model that you had of them. So that would be the fourth uh, method to use. So now there are four methods, the counterfactuals, the hyperbolic method, simulation, and falsification. And you could say that humanities tend to benefit more from the first two, while the natural sciences tend to benefit more from the latter two. But that's not necessarily the case. There are, there are significant exceptions. And what this suggests to me is that the, if this way of setting out the different methods is, is valid, the division between the human and natural sciences is actually an imperfect approximation to the real differences, the real fissure running through human knowledge, which has to do with the kinds that show the independence, the kinds of knowledge that show independence of a thing from its pieces and the kind that show the independence of a thing from its outer effects, uh, which are not strictly identifiable with either the sciences or the humanities. So, actually, I will end there. Sorry, so much. cut that so from questions for uh, Ian and Graham. I have a, a kind of hypothetical situation for that last talk, and I was just thinking of something like, like, a, like the exec, executive branch of government, yeah. the Israeli presidency or something, and then you have uh, Ariel Sharon who goes into a coma while he's president. Now, say they decided to just leave him as president. <laughs> I don't even know if this makes any sense at all. And, I mean, doesn't that impact what the, what the Israeli presidency means? I mean, does that, does, does that become a... Because I'm just trying to think of an example of where, you can, where the, the parts can't really just be swapped out. I mean, my original example was, like, say we accidentally hire a schizophrenic to be the president of the United States. Uh, imagine, and I don't necessarily imagine this, but a schizophrenic being less... You know, it's perfectly legal to hire a schizophrenic, but it wouldn't be like hiring a, 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 a person in, in kind of a very conventional mainstream understanding what a person is, does that actually transform what the presidency is? Do you know what I'm saying? I'm trying to decide whether to take the Sharon example or the schizophrenic example. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough choice. Well, I mean, the Sharon example actually offers to go to your Lincoln example. I mean, if you see someone like Reggie Sharon during the Roman period, you'd have to imagine two different, very different Sharons, because then someone would say, well, a comatose president isn't it might be a bad presidency, a comatose presidency. Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that a classic example of King's Two Bodies? Which is kind of a corporate movie. Yeah, yeah. Well, in a way, yeah, I, I, I think relational perspectives, you know, relationalisms are kind of trying to deal with this anxiety. Uh, or sort of repression. I mean, they're, you know, one of the things that's traumatic about objects is precisely because you can have situations in which Sharon has gone into a coma and he's still president, right? You know, he still has that particular quality and it's terrible, right? Uh, and, and um, you know, so reducing an object to its relations or saying that it is its relations would be a way of uh, warding all the you know, trying to, to avoid this, this mm -hmm. horror of the malformed relation. Mm -hmm. You've got me stumped as I'm trying to translate Sharon into these terms. So no one else can jump on this if they want, as I'm thinking. 
people ask me, you know, they'll, they'll point out something like, um, oh, my body. And, and I made this argument against you initially when we first started talking about object-oriented right. ontology. You know, my body is dependent on oxygen. It's dependent on, uh, you know, right. food and gravity and so on and so forth. But what if it gets catapulted into outer space? Right. But then I no longer exist. And, um, but it does. It, life is a local manifestation of a body, right? It's still that object, right? Uh, it's just no longer able to locally manifest itself in the the answer I gave, I think, was that you will die, but it, it's you that will die. It's not your relation with oxygen that will die. Yeah. So yeah. the autonomy is still preserved. It's simply that the survival is not preserved. Mm. Other questions? Back. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a question. I think it's interesting that you're bringing up um, the idea of objects in relation to sets and saying that and, you know, an object is something that cannot simply be a set or, or mm -hmm. a certain county. Obviously, we know from from Badiou that um, you know any object would be something like the the counting of a number of elements as a one, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, my question would be, how then can we ever differentiate a set from an object in the sense of why would the, if we say the room, if we nominate the room, why is that not a counting of one of the component mm -hmm. elements? In the same way that we could say, you know, the the uh, clock, the fly, and the screen, right, yeah. and count those as one. And or a simpler example might be round objects in the room, which would have properties if we said go collect all the round objects in the room, or go play with all the round objects in the room, right? They they do have they do have um, these these aspects. The other thing is any how would you address any counting of the room, let's say, as as a one or as an object would also um, it would have to not count certain things. In other words, there's there's an absence within any counting. Um, so that, for instance, you know, if we take the food that is here, the drinks mm -hmm. that are here, there are obviously workers who brought those to us. But usually, the counting of the room would not consider that. Would not consider the fact that these objects have been brought here, but sort of take it in this imminent kind of state. So how, I guess those are the two questions. This is actually my biggest problem with Badiou, the fact that a one is always counted as one. That's not what a one is. A one is something that has this autonomy from its pieces, from its external environments. If you say that a, th a thing is unified simply because it's counted as one, you're giving the, po the power to the counter. counter. Yeah. And even when Badiouians some, sometimes try to say, well, that's not a it's not a human, it's a subject, whatever that means, apart from it's humans. It's very vague. Very vague, and so um, uh, Isn't I don't there some confusion there between counting of as one and the, what he calls a body? Because a body is much closer to what you're calling an object, it seems to me, than yeah. just counted as one. Yes, and I'm going to try to write something on Logics of Worlds this year to explain why I'm still not satisfied. But uh, for certainly for being an event, it doesn't, it just doesn't make any sense, the fact that the counting of the one could create a one. Because then what, what, you're, what you're counting is still units. How are those units? Are those also counted as ones? Or are they ones in their own right? And so on. Right, but so why would you say the set of all round things is somehow substantively different than the root? Why, why would one be an object and the other not? Maybe the room isn't an object either. That's also up for question. Uh, but the criteria both have to pass are the same. Right? They have to be independent of their pieces. They have to be independent of their environment. That's why I gave these four methods. Can you, I don't know, in the case of the round objects, I don't know how you would counterfactualize that or, or give a hyperbolic reading of that. See, I'm um, fine with the, with the room and the, the set of round things being objects. Um, it's just that the, they're, 
different from one another. If you took all of the objects in the room and, uh, and put them in some box, you know, this would be different from the room. So I, I have this like incredibly indiscriminate sense of, of what exists, which is which is a bit different from from Graham's position. Yeah. Um, and and you know this gets me out of a lot of trouble because I can just say, well, yeah, sure. There's there's the set of the set of round things uh, counts as an, as a thing, as does the room. That's fine. That's fine for me. But I do agree with this this critique of of, of the count as one. Um, you, I mean, it, maybe it's useful for for certain ways of orienting, but uh, but it can't be thought of as the the way by which objects come into being. Right. Yeah. Which not, is not what Badiou says. Let's just. No, no. But this is what some, I mean when when you sort of Badiou and object oriented thinking collide, this is the question that, that comes up. And so the answer is, well, there's sort of an incompatibility, and that's kind of that. Mm -hmm. You can still like Badiou if you want. Can yeah. you okay. say a little bit about that, Ken? Uh, yeah. About how that's not well, Badiou's theory of how objects come into being? Because um, you know, it seems to me that if Badiou's ontology, you have to have this transition between inconsistent multiplicity and consistent multiplicities, and an object mm -hmm. would be a consistent multiplicity that's called a well, the theory of objects, again, you know, there is this whole, like, you know, being an event logic of world sort yeah. of thing going on here. Yeah. And, you know, the whole consistent, inconsistent multiplicity is, you know, not really carried through. Mm. And the, the structure of an object is just completely distinct from that. Um, and it does seem to me that that ought to be somehow a primary subtext of people doing object-oriented ontology. Um, and I'm, I'm curious to hear actually what, what Graham has to say about that. I'm still digesting Logics of Worlds is the answer, but I, am, I do have something on tap. I, I've been asked to write an article for an anthology about this, and I'm going to make it into a larger project. Because, yeah. Yeah. go ahead. No, I, it seems to me that it's, it's a completely different vocabulary, yeah. and the counting of, count as one is not, it's just not figured in it at all. Right. And really, the interesting yeah. question is how bodies are put together out of objects. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so... We were responding to being an event in these remarks. Yeah, I think that's yeah. you know, it's almost unfair. That was, you know, how many years ago was that really conceived, even, you know, in the 80s? Um, All right, but that's still how a lot of people are seeing Badiou, right? Yeah. Logics yeah. of Worlds is still barely being assimilated. So, yeah. and people are still defending the count as one as the standard. And so we, it is fair for us to say, no, that's not enough. But it's certainly not what he calls an object. That's, that's a Well, I had thought that the transcendental was like the structure of a situation and uh, Badiou was being an event. Um, and so he was now talking about appearing in worlds, which was a result of these operations. That's a, yeah. it's a theory of, um, of how to fix the constitution of an object through um, imminent relations among uh, objects in the world. Mm -hmm. That is to say, like, you know, the formalism in that book gives you a way of thinking determination of individuation, which I think was a question that was asked earlier about how the individuation right. of an object can be secured for object-oriented philosophy yep. without a sort of theory yep. so. of, of individuation. Um, and, uh, and so for Badiou, like, I agree with Ken that the third, you know, the, the part of Logique des Mondes where uh, there's a whole theory, of, a theory of the object without a subject, is really crucial. Text that demands some sort of, um, I mean, like, a, but it doesn't really. I mean, like, let me let me clarify what I mean by that. <laughs> there very well may be. No, I mean, I'm like dead serious about that. It's it's a respectable um, and respectful comment. I think there may very well be a Badiouian object-oriented position, and that would be great. I don't think I would be bothered by that. Um, but we don't necessarily need to account for it, right? Like, it's up to somebody else to come up with the Badiouian, the like purely Badiouian object-oriented position. I don't think we need to sort of recuperate. Um, the various theories that, that you, you know, each of us has a, a somewhat distinct version of this with, with similar properties. Um, 
it, it doesn't bother me at all that, that you know there may not be some response to by you in, mm -hmm. in this position. The, the fact that he doesn't use there is a response though because consistent multiplicities in being an event are produced by a subject I never had the subject. This is a this is a, a broader observation about yeah. the philosophy in general though, right? That, right. that we don't there, there's no necessity to to account for things all the time. It's possible just to ignore them actually. <laughs> you know, and say, well I'm just I, not gonna bother. Right, but Ian, I think that would be we are speaking about what you so it would be like um, criticizing uh, Kant's aesthetics by referring to the critique of pure reason. I mean, there's a there's an explicit theory of the object laid out in published text. Yes, but there's there's also a theory of consistent multiplicities and being an event, and that deserves to be criticized from our standpoint. And you'll you'll see a, a critique from me of logics of world soon enough. That's no, my that's answer. That's terrific. Yeah. The, the other question, just if I can finish, uh, that that, um, that Levy's bringing up is the role of the subject here, which I do think that um, is under uh, estimated, underplayed in mm -hmm. some object-oriented um, thinking. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, it's not a subject who is counting the one, for example. No, yeah, that's what I just said. It's not that. Right? Oh, good, because yeah. that, I thought you had said the, the opposite. No, because it's not a subject. In fact, the subject is produced in this very procedure, occasionally, sometimes, you know, under all these certain conditions, right? But it's not somehow a pre preconceived subject, right? Uh, and but, so, but there's still always going to be someone there seeing it. At least until you get to logics of worlds. There, there may be somebody there, but but in in, 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 uh, in being an event, uh, let's say at least as assumed. But in logics of worlds, it's not there at all. Right. But what the complaint I hear sometimes about what I say against being an event is people say, you know, it's not an it's not a subject that's actively constituting this count. But that doesn't really matter. The activity or the passivity doesn't matter. That's kind of like. That's the point. And the point mm -hmm. is that the subject the subject is that which arises in a, another type of procedure, another type of counting, right? Yeah, but still, you're still going to have an observer. There, there's no such thing as an, in, in, in being an event. There's no such thing as an internal structure, right? It's, it's they're sets. They're extensive. You don't have an internal unity of, of things. Well, in the event, there's a subject, but what you refers to as the count as one, mm -hmm. is just native to the structure of the situation. And, and the point of the view is that each situation has a different operator, but none of these operators are distinctively human. For example, he says that the operator for ontology is deduction, right? But um, for example, deduction. Deduction. And, you know, for example, the operation of belonging is a theory. But there's no presupposition of anything like a transcendental constituent subject. Or I think there are kind of hominems at work here, right? Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's Baidu's theory of the subject, and of course it's not Baidu's subject. In, in, in Baidu's sense, right. that's right. as one. That's right. And then there's the <coughs> yep. subject of phenomenology, yep. of, you know, Kantian idealism, sure. and so on and so forth. Right. And there's this weird thing, this, this operation of the count as one, who's doing the operating, uh, which seems to be the issue here. Um, now, if it's, if, if it's machines, if, if, like my machines beach, my seashells at uh, Nag's Head, uh, you know, if, if that is an operator that counts as one, I think that's pretty badass and cool. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, he never really seems to talk that way. I mean, it always mm -hmm. seems like it's going to be some sort of human agency or yeah, social does. agency that's unifying these, uh, yeah. these fields. Eleanor? Um, I think with that, you, one doesn't necessarily need to look at the places where he might talk about an object. I mean, I think one thing about the object-oriented ontology is it's giving a very expansive notion of the object, right? And um, in a sense, one might think in Badiou, well, you know, I mean, this traverses a lot of his work, at least. Um, uh, you know, his, his four generic procedures um, and the way they function, which, in a sense, um, you know, 
again, one could debate about the relative position of the subject in there, but, you know, interestingly, um, in a way, you, again, I'm not sure I would even agree with this, but one could say, well, the subject on some level is the ontological position or the mathematics of philosophy, which is sort of outside of the generic mm -hmm. positions, but you have these, you know, kind of strange operators in Badiou's work that, in some ways, I think function not entirely unlike, I'm not saying completely, but mm -hmm. ha have some of the dimensions of what has been discussed here in terms of, of you know, um, interactions of objects or non-interactions of objects. I mean, that's interesting about the generic procedures. You don't really have them in combination. I mean, you could say almost they're withdrawn from each other in a certain, uh, you know, admittedly kind of strange way in Bedvey's work. Um, I mean, even when he looks at poems, which is a, you know, he has a particular kind of analysis. This is on another level, but, um, you know, that, that, you know, one might say that he's making into an object and not necessarily from the position of a subject making something an object. I mean, again, that's debatable. But, but it seems like there's ways that, you know, without Badiou calling it an object per se, that um, things like objects might be said to function in this work. So, I mean, I don't think it's an irrelevant um, type of uh, exercise to, to be thinking about since Badiou is clearly so formative for so many of the people. There's certainly nothing like an inconsistent multiplicity in object-oriented intelligence whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really the issue. Yep. Well, I don't think but any of us is, are objecting to Badiou, though. There I is mean, something. Like an, there is something. No. Like Where? There's an infinite regress. That's not an inconsistent multiplicity. That's an infinite layers of consistent multiplicities, if you were going to yeah. use his terminology. I mean, but that itself that. is an inconsistent multiplicity. No, it's not. The infinite <laughs> regress of those. What makes it consistent? You've got perfectly defined units lined up in a chain. If the multiplicity of those units was consistent, then it would be a consistent multiplicity. And if it's not consistent... No, no, only if I accept Badiou's philosophy would it be a consistent multiplicity. I'm saying that there's nothing... Look at the features of the inconsistent multiplicity in Badiou. None of those features can be found anywhere in the object-oriented position. But, it, but an infinite regress is a multiplicity of elements. Sure, it wouldn't be an, an infinite regress of anything. The, the, the and if it's not totalized then it's inconsistent. No, the key feature mm. of Baidu's inconsistent multiplicities is that they're without one in any way whatsoever. The Whereas these are Infinity does not mean non-totalizability. May assume makes this very clear in his work, right? So an infinite regress is not a non-totalizable regress. Infinity, right? May assume... All I'm saying is that if something is, if something is a non-totalizable um, composition of elements, mm -hmm. then it's inconsistent and it's a multiplicity. I'm saying, I mean, if you can't render it consistent by totalizing the field of those uh, objects or entities or elements or sets, then it's an inconsistent multiplicity. It can't be rendered consistent by its totality. I mean, it's just the, a... You're saying, I believe, yeah. that it is simply something like an infinite. I mean, it, it is totalizable. Yes. Mayasu talks about how there are infinitely many pieces on a rope where you can cut it. That's still totalizable. Just because they're infinite doesn't mean that it's not totalizable. So I would disagree that the infinite regress of objects is non-totalizable. I mean, it's infinite, yes. That's where, I think, uh, that's where I think an encounter with the mathematics of the infinite becomes important, because we have to know what we're speaking about when we speak about an infinite regress. And that's a, it's a mathematical concept. I mean, arguably, you know, but to, to, if we're going to speak about infinities, then mathematics is a discourse on that sort of thing. So it's just, for me, it's a sort of fundamental point, because the point at which a philosophy gives way onto something like an infinite regress, the reason why that's a problem for thought 
It's, it's, it's a question of what are we really talking about, you know? And so Bavia's whole reason for saying that mathematics is ontology is to actually know what we're talking about when we say a word like infinite, right? Well, I think this would be another point of divergence. Yeah. Uh, the idea that being and thinking are identical to one another. Yeah. And that I don't think any realist ontology can uh, adopt that thesis. So. Mm-hmm. Which he proudly proclaims even in Logics of Worlds, being and thinking of the same, which we would never see. Uh, yeah, I, I, I just wanted to make sure he, he did some of the points uh, There was a question from Twitter. Oh, oh. <laughs> well, only if it's a really Who's the questioner? It is a, it's another question from Robert Jackson. Okay. And he wants to know, is, is, a, is a unity a pseudo-object, an aesthetic unity? An aesthetic unity. I would like to know what that means. He's distant, so it's hard to get a yeah. quick answer to that. Robert Jackson is sitting in Plymouth in the UK right now. For this cast, uh, it's what time? It's uh, at least one in the morning. He's always asking me aesthetics questions. I would say, actually, this is an interesting example because there are true and false aesthetic unities, I'm sure. What's the difference between a good and a bad artwork? We have to be able to distinguish between those. But relates to parody and style Yeah, yeah. Can you parody it? That's, that's a good rough rule of method. Can you parody the artwork? Can you parody the artist? Yeah, no, no, you're right, I did. I did. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's true, it's true, I am. Yeah. You're right, the more simulatable the object is, the more likely it's real, the more parody the It's different from it. I'm betraying my medieval biases, I guess. Interchangeability of the transcendentals. Uh, you gave a series of conditions for what would constitute a real object, right? And at, at the beginning, I mean, we also perversed that you do not think that there's you know, just all objects are real, there's also sexual objects. Although you said at one point at the beginning of, of your presentation that reality structure of two sides, sexual and real. Yeah. But we've, you know, you've, you've mentioned in the past that there are something like purely sexual objects, right? That there are objects like, you know, when I imagine I'm getting there. Right, but they have some relation to real objects. It's just the, they might, the real object might not represent, uh, resemble a teddy bear as we know it. Okay, so yeah, uh, my, my question no. was, was going in that direction. It was basically to ask, uh, so do you, have you developed some series of conditions for what constitutes or how uh, intentional objects or central objects rather are individuated as well? Just like the computer was for real objects. In a way, that's easier because we are the ones who decide what a real... Uh, maybe we don't decide it, but intentional objects are presented to us. Whatever we... Recognize as a unity as an intentional object. Right, but, but uh, of course, into, uh, since we're transplanted in the intentional or rather central domain outside of human comprehension, right, yes. we cannot simply say that uh, intentional objects are whatever you can identically sort of grant unity towards. Unless we want to pervert back to history, since presumably yeah. objects in themselves are, you know, are entering into intentional relations within you know, intentional objects themselves. So, I mean, what does outside of human comprehension? There are no intentional objects outside human prehension or outside prehension of some other object. Right? They're, they're imminent, it's imminent objectivity. That's the definition of intentionality. It's a mistake to say the intentional object is something you're pointing at outside. That's a real object. Um, and I would also say that we don't make mistakes about intentional objects. We make mistakes about what their essential and accidental qualities are. That's why the analyses are needed. But we never make, you know, I never look at this and say, actually, this is an intentional object. All this together was an intentional object. Because we're the ones who decide what an intentional object is. We just might be wrong about the essential qualities versus the accidental ones. Uh, 
That's, that. So this is a really good place for your point about obtuse causation, right? Uh, you know, yes. The obtuse objects confuse them with one another. That's right. Distinguish them. So we have good a point. analysis of racism. What's the, how does the racism work into it? It's a kind of obtusity. Okay, I see what you mean. Right. Yeah, yeah. Generalization. Right. Well, listen, I think we need to uh, complete this object. Wrap <laughs> 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 it, give it to okay. Thank you. <laughs> and well, thank you all for a fabulous time. <laughs>